has to say to us this Lord's Day. We're in Romans chapter 6, and let me begin reading in verse 15. I'm going to read down through verse 19. It's, uh, what then? Are we to sin because we are no, not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of, the, of righteousness, and I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for leading leading to sanctification. Gracious Heavenly Father, we we bow before You with thankful hearts this day. Lord, You're a God who loves Your church. You sent Your Son to die for the church. We thank You, Lord, for building Your church here in, in Cody at Redeeming Grace Church. Just for every evidence, Lord, of Your kind favor, every evidence of Your kind blessing, how you've wonderfully met our needs over the years. And we thank you, Lord, that you're continuing to grow us and strengthen us and position us for the ministry you've placed us in here in, in uh, Cody, Park County, and the uttermost parts of the world. Father, we are, our, our prayers are for those in our body uh, who are healing. Uh, I think of Pete, Father, who is healing from his surgery, and pray, God, your mercy would be upon him. We ask, Father, that you would... Uh, Re, helping to regain a sense of feeling and the nerves in his arm and that your healing would take place there and strength would occur, Father, uh, that he might, by your kindness and your mercy, uh, receive full, full use, Lord, of his arm uh, to, to work and to serve you. And then, Father, we, we're grateful as well for, for how you've uh, helped Greg to go through his surgery and we see the evidences of your healing in his life and Pray, Lord, for full use of his hip and his, his gait and his walk, Lord, that you would help him during this time of, of recovery. Uh, we pray for Alan Sheila, who are getting ready to head down to Salt Lake City, Father, and, and to, to meet with and converse with doctors and seek counsel. And I just pray, God, that you're, you would be there, you'd be present in such a way that you would give not only the doctors but Al wisdom as he understands uh, the needs that he might have, whatever they might be, Father. And, and you would use, Lord, this consultation, this, this, this meeting, Lord, to, to strengthen him, uh, to bring a full healing to him, Lord willing, in the days ahead. We thank you for helping, Lord, uh, in the moving of our body, Lord. We, Jane was moved this week. Uh, Mary was moved this week to new houses and new places. We're thankful for those who to helped in that move, in those moves, and uh, pray you'd help them both as they get settled in their new, new homes. 
And Father, today we're, we're coming to your word and we're asking you to open our hearts to attend to it. And Lord, we're asking for illumination, for light, for understanding. Lord, for pliable hearts, Lord, and pliable wills that are willing to do what you call us to do. And, and, and for those who are without Christ to, to believe what they're called to believe, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Lord, would you save anyone who's lost this day? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we enter the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, we've seen that, that Paul here has been describing this radical transformation that takes place in the lives of everyone whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you believe in Christ, something happens. You're not the same person you were before you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You radically change. There's a before and there's an after. And so we've been looking at the before up up through chapter 5. And now as we come to chapter 6 and we look at this glorious doctrine of sanctification uh, through faith in Christ alone, we realize that there's a change that takes place in our lives. There's justification. That is, we're what? Declared not guilty. We, We have the righteousness of Christ brought to us. And we're clothed in His righteousness through faith in the works of Christ on the cross. And that's true of every believer. So we're forgiven. We're, 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 we're treated as righteous. But it doesn't stop there. When you come to chapter 6, you realize that's just the beginning of what God begins to do in the life of a Christian. Because He begins to change you. And if you're a believer in Christ today, you're, you're in that process of being changed even today. I mean, theologically, we, we, we've said already that, that, that there was a reign of sin in your life before, and now there's a reign of what? Righteousness in your life today. Now, Paul doesn't want to move on any further in the book of, of Romans chapter 6 without making sure that we really understand and we really know something to be true. Uh, He wants the truth that He's laid out for us in verses 1 through 18 to sink in, percolate a little bit in your heart. He wants you to not only know more deeply what these truths are and more experientially what they are in your life, but you also might begin to feel them in your life emotionally as well. He wants you to believe it. He wants you to act upon what He's about to say. He wants you to feel it. And He wants you to express the joy that it should bring to all of us in worship. So Paul is going to do today what a good preacher should periodically do. And that is whenever they bring a teaching, a preaching of the Word of God, they add to it what's called illustrations or pictures or antidotes, as as Spurgeon would call them. He's going to bring an illustration for us to drive this this truth home and to drive it deep down into our heart. And he's going to pull a a picture that everyone in Rome was very, very familiar with, an illustration that he didn't have to inform them what it was. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And it's also a picture that resonates in, in, in our hearts, in our lives. In fact, it's really an illustration that speaks to 21st century Wyoming. 
Now, you're going to see that he chose an illustration here for the modern ear as well as the ancient ear. But to the modern ear, to you and me, it might seem a little raw. This illustration might even seem a little prickly. It might be, create a sense of sensation in the heart of some. It's an illustration It will not only drive the truth home, but should drive a, a sense of emotion with it as well. And the picture is this. It's one word. The illustration is this. Slavery. Slavery. Now, slavery stirs up emotions in a lot of people. I mean, you can't even say the word today without what? Being canceled out. So I don't know if we're going to be canceled out on this one or not, but, but, but it's, it comes from the Word of God. Um, in fact, when we think of slavery as, as Americans, we don't think of it the same way that perhaps a, a Roman would back 2,000 years ago. But, you know, we think of our shameful history in the United States and, and all that happened in, in, in that, under that history. We know that it's an emotional, it's a very emotional subject. You mentioned slavery, and it's linked with prejudice, racism. But it wasn't that way back in, in, uh, in Rome, because slaves were of all races. It wasn't just one race that, that, that were, where there was slavery during the times of Paul. We're sensitive because the cancel culture has taken anyone who has a statue anywhere in the south or the north, and they might have held slaves at one time in their life. It's been torn down and hauled off into some refuge pile somewhere. And so we hear the word slavery and we might bristle. And we hear the word slavery and we might be stirred up in our heart. But this is the Word of God, a perfect illustration to help us truly understand sanctification in the life of the Christian because it is really under the banner of slavery. I know slave wouldn't have the same impact uh, back in those days as it did today. In fact, it probably would have almost no impact. Uh, this was written at a time when 40% of the uh, <clears throat> Roman Empire, those who lived in Italy itself, were in fact slaves. So think of that. Almost half the population were slaves when Paul wrote this. That means that at the Church of Rome, if it was pretty emblematic of, of, the, old, of the whole city, more than likely, half the church at Rome could have been slaves. Half of them could have been masters. We don't, we don't know. But we know this, there were probably slaves, there were probably masters, and there were probably those in the church who, if they weren't either one, they knew people who were slaves, and they knew people who were masters. So this spoke very, very closely to each of their hearts. But what we're going to see today is this. Paul is going to make this declaration that everyone that's ever walked on the face of this world has been a slave of one of two masters. That's us. Everyone in this room, we've all been a slave of one of two masters. When it comes to faith in Christ, we've been emancipated from slavery to sin. We were born slaves to sin. We entered this world slaves to sin. We were slaves to sin. And some of you might be slaves to sin today because you're outside of Christ. But when you come to faith in Christ and you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you immediately become not a slave of sin anymore. Now you're a new, a new slave. 
Now you're a slave to righteousness that Paul talks about here. And so the question we're going to ask this morning is simply this. Whose slave are you? Whose slave are you? You're one of two. There's one or two masters. And each one of us fall under one of those two masters. Either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Now last week we saw this wonderful declaration in verse 14 where Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And so that was kind of the end of the passage we looked at last week. And it's a wonderful truth. We're no longer under dominion of sin in the sense that the law, we're not under the law. We're not, we're not fallen as far as the law doesn't save us. We don't believe the law any longer has a condemnation in our life because we're now under grace. Now, you'll notice in your uh, bulletin, there's a, there's a three-point outline that should be four points. And uh, the first point we're going to look at under the heading today, is these headings, is the anticipated objection. That's the first one. And the second is the anecdotal answer. The third is the adoration. And then if you take the end of that line and bring it down, and the fourth we're going to look at, and finally, is the appeal. So notice how he begins in verse 15 with a question. Well, what then? Are we to sin because we are no, we're not under law but under grace? I mean, what then? In light of everything I just wrote, what should we conclude? We said that sin will no longer have dominion over us. We're no longer under law, but we're under grace. And if that's true, if we're not under the law anymore... Shall we go out and continue to sin? I mean, there's no law over us. We're, we're lawless people. We're in Christ. We're under grace. Let's go out and do whatever we want to do. And then the response is, uh, well, wait a minute. Isn't that kind of a quirky question? I mean, do you think that's a quirky question? I mean, written by the Apostle Paul to a church about the salvation that's in Christ. I mean, did someone even ask the question and we're not under law, so let's go out and sin? I mean, who would even think of such a question like that? Who would even ask a question like that? But listen carefully. The more you think about it, you realize it's not as quirky as it sounds. In fact, it's a very common question. And it would have been a common question back during the days of the Roman Empire, and it's just as practically a, a very common question that's raised today in the church. Let me give you an example. Back in the old days, time of the Apostle Paul, there were those who ran around. Jude 4 talks about these Judaizers, those who were going around. Uh, the book of Galatians is written to Judaizers who, who taught this. Believe in Christ and you'll be a Christian, but don't stop there. It's not a period. Put a plus after it and keep the moral law or, or keep the ceremonial law of God. That was the formula, become a Christian. You believe in Jesus, plus you've got to do a work. You must keep the ceremonial law of God. Faith plus obedience equals salvation. You say, well, what kind of gospel is that? Well, that was a gospel that was being taught wrongly by, by some in the church back during the days of Paul. And so you could see why someone who might believe in that doctrine might be saying, well, then what does that mean then? If we're not under the law anymore, are we free then to go out and sin? 
In fact, uh, today, there's many uh, uh, professing Christians who are out there, teachers that are out there, who are teaching that we must live under the moral code of God to be saved. Oh, yes, you can bring Jesus in, and oh, yes, you believe in Jesus and become a Christian, but you must keep the law of God. And here's a moral list of do's and don'ts, and you must keep them all to be a true Christian. So they put you under works. And so they might respond, well, Paul, if we're not under works anymore, then does that mean we can go out and sin? And to them, the word grace is a very dangerous word. And then we saw before, there's the antinomians today, that is anti-against, nomos, law. So those who are against law, uh, they're in the church today. They're the extreme grace people who believe that there's there's no room at all in the life for for the law to come in and, and, and to direct or guide the Christian life. We're free from the law. Yes, we're not. We're under grace, they would say. Amen. And surely that means that we're then free to then to go out and do what? Do sin. And that's where antinomianism leads to, is, is to sin. Listen to what Jude said to these uh, people who came into the church. Jude 4, for certain people, and this is true today, Certain people have crept into the church unnoticed who long ago were, were designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the ones who creep into the church and they, they're, they're whispering, they're teaching. They might have a pulpit, they might have a Sunday school class and they're basically teaching that... Uh, uh, we're no longer condemned, and we have uh, grace abounding, and we can do whatever we want, including sin. And so this question might be asked by them. Are we to sin because we are no, we're not under law, but under grace? Does that sound familiar to you, by the way? Did, have you heard that before in Romans? I mean, didn't we just cover an objection like this a few weeks ago? I mean, wasn't the, the objection like this very similar? What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? I mean, if we're saved by grace alone, then let's, uh, and, and, uh, let's go out and sin, sin more so there'll be more grace. It's, not, it's the same question. It's very similar to the one that's being asked today. And I'll tell you what, Paul gives a strong answer today just like he gave a strong answer a couple weeks ago when we, we saw the, the other question. By no means. God forbid. May it never be. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. Impossible. Inconceivable. Do you not know? Again, that's one of Paul's favorite expressions. We saw it in verse 3, verse 9. Aren't you aware of these things? Shouldn't you already know this? Isn't this Christianity 101? Haven't you been taught this in Sunday school? Don't you know what I'm about to say? You all know it. I'm going to give you an answer. But I'm going to give you an answer this time by sharing with you an illustration or a picture to help you really understand what I'm trying to say. And the illustration comes from that one word, slavery. Let me tell you about slavery. And why this is, my answer is what it is. 
And every Roman knew what slavery was, as we already mentioned. It was a vital part of the Roman economy. It would have come to a standstill if there wasn't slaves. Uh, as we said before, every reader would have either owned a slave, been a slave, or knew a slave, or were a master, or they would have known another one who's a master. So very common in the church. They probably had seen slaves put up on auction blocks publicly and auctioned off to the highest, highest bidder. This is all first-hand knowledge to most of the people at Rome. In fact, I was reading last week a sad story of a young Roman man. So they show you how common this was. You know, if you weren't, if you weren't being sold into slavery, you could actually sell yourself as a bond slave and sell yourself into slavery. And I read the story about this young Roman man who, who sold himself as a slave so that he could get enough money to bury his father. Now, what, what a sad story. And so he, to pay off the debt, he sold himself into slavery and so he could take the funds and pay for his father's funeral. Slaves were common throughout the empire. And by the way, slaves in those days weren't just like out in the cotton fields and being whipped. They were running all, all areas of the economy. The slaves in Rome, some of them were doctors. The slaves in Rome, some of them were uh, seamstresses, and others were teachers, and one of the, some of the barbers were, were slaves. So they, they were involved in all different types of jobs throughout the economy. Now, let me ask you this. If you don't see the word slave or slavery in, uh, in verse uh, 16... Uh, Raise your hand. Wow. There's a couple translations out there that instead put in the word what? Servant. And servant is found throughout there. Some of you King James, King James people, I think you might find the word servant instead of slave. He goes on, he answers uh, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The word slave, by the way, is, is the, proper, the proper translation here, not servant. Uh, servant, there was, there was a Greek word for servant, uh, diakonos, that would be used for a deacon in the church who had the office of a servant, you know, Phoebe and some of the ladies of the church who were servants in the church. But, but a slave is a slave. Slaves lower than a servant. A slave is owned by someone else. A servant can come and go and hire themselves out. They can quit. They might have menial jobs and menial labor jobs, but on the other hand, they're not slaves or doulos. Uh, slaves were, were lower than the servants. Uh, they were owned by their master. Uh, they were chattel, the uh, legal term for property. They, they weren't considered people. And uh, so they were bound to total obedience to the master. Whatever the master said, the slaves had to do it. And that is the word that Paul is using here. Keep that in mind as we go through this. We're talking about a servant or a slave, not a servant. You were slaves of the, of the one whom you obey. And Paul's point is this. You're either a a slave either of sin, which leads to death, or you're a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Uh, one or the other. There's only two. And by the way, 
if you're without Christ, if you're not a Christian, you were born a slave to what? Sin. That's right. It's a sin. And you were a slave to sin all the way up to the point you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you become a Christian. And the moment you become a Christian, the moment you trust in Christ, the debt is paid to release you, to redeem you out of that slavery, and you immediately at that moment become a new slave. And now you're a slave to what? Righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing here, just those of you interested in grammar and English, he's really personifying uh, sin. I mean, sin's the master. Well, you know, a sin can't. A person has to be a master. So he's personifying sin. He's personifying righteousness. They're the masters. Now. To be a slave to sin means you're, you're locked in. You can't get out. You can't do anything to change your, your condition. You can't do anything to re- remove yourself from that slavery. Uh, you, you, you do whatever your flesh tells you to do. You, 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 you march in lockstep. You salute the flesh. And you are, you are a slave to sin. You're, in sh- you're shackled to sin. Now, you might say, wait a minute, Don, I, I know this, what you're saying. I see the words here in this passage. Uh, but I'm, I'm not a Christian today, and I don't think I'm really a slave to sin. I mean, that's kind of strong. I, I don't see myself that way. I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. I don't, no one tells me what to do. I can go where I want to go, do what I want to do, do however I want to do it. I'm not a slave to sin. Well, the Bible says you are. So now we've got to see who's telling the truth and who's deceived and who's not. And I think it's typical to be a slave to sin and be deceived into thinking that you're not a slave. Be deceived in thinking that you're, you're free, that there's no shackles tying you down. But as we're going to see, you are enslaved to sin. It's going to lead to your death eternally. And you will one day stand and give an account before the judgment seat of Christ. You're a slave to sin, but when you become a Christian, now a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, by the way, you might think that instead of the word righteousness, there ought to be the word life. I mean, if you're a slave to sin that leads to death, you think if you're a slave of righteousness, that might lead to what? To life. But instead, he says it leads to righteousness. Or holiness, which might be looked at as synonymous with eternal life versus eternal death. And what he's saying is this. Don't you know? Don't you realize? Don't you understand who you are? Don't you understand this very basic truth that whoever you obey, that's your master? If you're obeying sin, your master is sin and death. If you obey Christ, you're what? Your master is, is, is Christ himself. And your master is, 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 light, is, is obedience that leads to righteousness. Here's the point. There's only two masters. Sin and obedience. You can't have both. It's one or the other. 
And everyone without Christ is a, is a slave to sin. We can't serve two earthly masters. We can try that, but Matthew 6, Jesus reminds us in verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other. You're either a servant of, of sin or a servant of righteousness. And now what he does, we're going to see it uh, thirdly, is bring in the adoration in verse 17. The, the heading adoration. Because what he's going to do is he's going to introduce the transformation that salvation brings. If you can get your mind around verse 17, I believe this is one of the clearest descriptions of what happens to a person when they put their faith in Christ and they're saved. You have to follow it. You have to kind of hang in with each word there. But it's so exciting to Paul, he can't even get the words out of his mouth and describe the transformation without doing what? Thanking God. Because he knows what he's about to say is just amazing. But thanks be to God. See, he knows a change has taken place. And he knows that we didn't change ourselves. And he knows that only God can bring that change into our life. So rather than saying, I praise God for you Romans for what you did in believing in Christ. No, he doesn't go there. He says instead, I praise God for what he's done in and through you. It's all of God and it's all of grace. This change comes from God and there's nothing we can do to free ourselves. And that tells you, listen, if you're a slave to sin today, you can't, I mean, there's no Houdinis in the spiritual realm. You can't look for that secret key and unlock the shackles and release yourself and, and, and get out of sin. You can't do it that way. Only God can do that. God has to do that change in your life by His grace. That's why He thanks God here. It was left to you, you'd all be lost. It was left to me, we'd all be what? We'd all be slaves to sin. We'd all be chained. We'd all be shackled. We'd all die. We'd all go to hell. But praise be to God. He says, but thanks to God, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And by the way, if you like verbs, Jane likes verbs, don't you, Jane? Jane knows verbs. So, Jane knows verbs, and you'll notice that in this verse we have who were and who have become. Now, isn't that interesting? Who were, those who were once slaves to sin, no longer are slaves to sin, who what? Have become. And now you are obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You were Slaves to sin. You've become a slave to God in obedience. And how did that happen? There was a change in your heart. You see that in that verse? From the heart. This isn't some outward obedience uh, where you, you, know, you just kind of turned over a new leaf and your whole life changed after that. No. This is a, a heart change that only God can, can do. You were and now you've become. You were slaves of sin, and you've entered into this world in chains. And what a clear picture that is when you know everything about slavery. But you have become a Christian, and you've become a slave to righteousness. Now, 
let me just stop and raise an objection that some of you who might not be Christians might be tempted to think. You might be thinking something like this. My, my life's experience doesn't bear out what you're telling me from the Bible. Uh, I look around, and I know a lot of people who aren't Christians. They don't go to church. They're the guys at the banks and at the, you know, at the beauty shop and the barber shop. And, you know, these people at, you know, Albertsons and, uh, and maybe at Walmart, people that I know, my neighbor over the fence. And I look at their lives, and I have to honestly say, I don't see people who are slaves to sin. These are good, upstanding people. I mean, they seem to be very good people. In fact, I might even be tempted to say they even seem better than some of the people at Redeeming Grace Church who profess with their lips to be Christians. So how do you explain that if this is true, that you were slaves to sin before you came to Christ and now you're slaves to righteousness? You might say, well, you know, I I understand there's a few bad apples out there. I mean, I'm watching one guy on TV by the name of Putin. I, I put him right at the top of the list. They're not my unsaved friends, my relatives, my, my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad. How do we explain that? It's true that many do seem moral, don't they? We look around the world, and, uh, and this can be a trap, by the way, that can snare you if you take this thinking too far. There's many out there that seem better than people who you know that are Christians. You just look at their lives. They seem like, I mean, they, they've never had a speeding ticket once in their life. Um, you know, if there's funds being raised for the Ukraine, they're the first to take out their checkbook and they're writing checks, big checks out, sending it off to help people. People who need food and and shelter, and they're the first in line to show compassion on others. How do we explain that? Well, the answer, I think, has to be understood by the word heart and external external moralism. Uh, The answer is that uh, you're right. There are many people who are not Christians who outwardly seem to be much more moral in many ways than people who profess faith in Christ who are supposedly slaves to righteousness. They obey the laws of the land. You don't find them in the police blotter of the newspaper. Uh, They give charitably whenever there's needs. They're generally nice people. So are you saying they're slaves to sin? Well, the Bible says that, doesn't it? Well, then what does that mean? Look at their heart. Look at their relationship to God. Look what they think about their Creator. Look what they think about the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lovingly came into this world and laid down His life as a sacrifice for sin. Look at how they respond to the gospel that says, bow your knee to Christ as the Lord of your life and and no longer be your own Lord. See how they respond to God and to His Word and then you begin to see a glimpse of a heart. Of a heart that's dead and a heart that that He's going to describe as impure. 
and a heart that is lawless. We've already seen earlier in Romans that he says these are people who suppress the truth in what? In unrighteousness. These are people who never think about striking someone or, you know, maybe punching somebody out. But they would support a candidate, for example, who believes in what? Aborting babies and killing the most innocent of all, the unborn. Then you begin to see the heart masked in kind of an outward veneer of moralism. Uh, they reject Jesus. They reject God. They reject the, 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 the Word of God. They reject the law of God. And ultimately, they refuse to worship Him. They refuse to bow their knee to Him. And then you begin to see the ugliness come out of the heart of their hatred for God. Well, even that might be masked by external formalism or external religion. So to deal with their conscience, they'll go to a church or go to some, some group where they can worship externally but never have to deal with the ugliness of their heart. They're enslaved to sin. It's in their heart. Sin reigned over unto death, and now they become slaves to God. But notice that this change is not a minuscule change. When you go from being a slave to sin to becoming a slave to God, there is not a process that leads to that second slavery. It's instantaneous. I was reading this last week about the Emancipation Proclamation. It was signed in 1863. And, you know, it didn't, you might think that all the slaves were set free with that Emancipation Proclamation. That really didn't take place. Is the 13th Amendment? Does that help me with historians here? 13th Amendment? Free the slaves? Come on. We're, we're all northerners here. We should know this. But uh, I believe it's 13th Amendment. When that was finally approved, then, then it was across the land. But there were slaves in states when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by, by uh, the president in 1863 who still remained slaves. You didn't hear about it, they didn't know about it, they didn't care about it, they stayed right where they are. And there was a, a long process that took place for, before some of them were actually liberated from their slavery physically, even though legally they were declared emancipated before that. That's not salvation. It's not like you, oh, I'm, I'm freed from being a slave to sin and now I'm gradually I'm still a slave to sin, but I'm gradually becoming a slave to God. No, it happens the moment you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You have a new master. It's immediate. The price was paid. The price of redemption was paid. The chains were, were, un- were unlocked, and you were set free, and you became a slave to righteousness. Now, this, this process here is it's just wonderful because... He talks about this obedience this, the, of, to the Word of God doesn't flow from the mind. It isn't like I'm going to really determine myself to be a righteous person. It doesn't flow from the will. It's not a sense in which, uh, you know, uh, self-determination, I can do this. It comes from the heart. Notice what he says. It comes from the heart. It begins with the inward work of, man, of God in the heart of man. And 
stay with me on this because this is so wonderful. What, what, what we see here is this, is there's the promise of the, of the new covenant given back to us in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And, and the, the promise is made that one day God will come and He's going to take your heart of stone out and He's going to put a heart of flesh in you. Let me just read it to you, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart. I'll give you a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That all happens as part of salvation. That's wonderful. Uh, no wonder he stops at the very beginning of this verse and he says, well, well thanks be to God. Look what he's done. I was born a slave. I was freed by Christ. He paid the price of my redemption. And then not only that, I began to see the beauty of Christ. I was drawn to Him and I began to understand through the new birth that He is the Son of God. He did die on the cross. He did sacrifice His his life for my sins. And I can be forgiven. And, And I hear His call to come and I'm coming. And I hear His call to repent and I'm turning. And I'm trusting in Christ. And while all of that is going on, there's something else going on. God is giving you a new heart. And the Spirit of God indwells you as a believer from the moment that you believe. And then you begin to have new desires and new passions and new affections of wanting to live a life that's pleasing to God rather than to yourself. And then he's not done yet. This is so wonderful because you've got to tack this on as well. To the standard of teaching in which you were commanded. Do you see that? Or commit it. So what we have, we believe in Christ. He changes our heart. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us. We delight in doing His law. And not only that, He gives us over to the standard of teaching or the doctrine to which we were committed. And I take that to mean, as you look at the imagery that he's describing here, is that when he saved you, he put you into the mold of sound doctrine and truth. And that mold is day by day, week by week, month by month, shaping you, molding you into the image of Christ, which is progressive sanctification. It's all there in that verse. No wonder he says, thanks be to God. A change has taken place. You've been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. And hey, listen, that's you, Christians. That's you. This is what God did in your life. This isn't just pie-in-the-sky theology. We've had, you know, a dusty book, pull it off the shelf. This is real. This is an exhortation to do anything. Simply a declaration of what God has done for you. You've been freed from sin, and your slavery uh, to sin is no more. You're now a slave to righteousness. And by the way, it doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're perfection. Perfection's coming. When you see Jesus face to face, and then you know this is perfection day. So we're not there yet. You're growing. You're maturing. But your heart now beats and pounds after righteousness. So you're going to have temptations. 
We right. Everybody has some temptations. Many of us uh, we sinned this last week. We're not perfect, but we've been freed from the slavery to sin. You know, I was thinking in some ways our life is kind of like the Jews back. Remember, they were slaves to uh, Egypt for like four hundred years, and then God freed them, and they went through the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army was drowned, and <coughs> the. Uh, so here they are, freed by God from slavery. And what do they want? They want to go back. The temptation was still there, wasn't it? Numbers 11, verse 4, And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we might have meat to eat. Oh, he says, We remember the fish that we ate back in Egypt. It was so good. And it didn't cost us anything because we're slaves. And then the cucumbers, anybody like cucumbers? The melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Oh, let's go back. Isn't that how we are? We've been freed from sin, freed and slaves to righteousness. Even though we have a new heart, we pants after holiness, we all want to kind of go back to slavery again. We want to go back to sin. We have become slaves of righteousness. And then lastly, number four is the appeal is at the very end here. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitation. And Paul's saying, I've been speaking to you through illustrations, through pictures, through, through antidotes here of slavery. Why? Because you're weak and you don't understand the doctrine behind it. You need some help. And so I have to draw from an illustration of slavery to help you understand these deep spiritual truths. And by the way, illustrations and antidotes are helpful whenever you're teaching the Word of God to your children, uh, whether it's in a Sunday school setting, whether it's preaching the Word in front of a church uh, or out in the soapbox somewhere. Uh, it's biblical to have a story to have an illustration, have an example brought to us to help us understand the truth. These mental pictures are very helpful. Hopefully you find them helpful when we, when we do that. And uh, it makes, to me, it makes the Bible sometimes clear if they're properly used. Spurgeon called them, uh, I think the words he used was Mary's basement apartment. Did you know he knew about your... No. He said, you know, sometimes if you go with no, with no illustrations, no pictures, no antidotes, it's like living in a house with no windows. It's just blocks all around you of theology. And here you are in the midst of all the blocks of theology. And, you know, that's kind of cold. It's kind of indifferent. Uh, but then he describes here, let me just share you with what he describes. When the windows are there, the antidotes are there, the illustrations are there, it lets light in. And it illuminates, and it helps us see and understand. He writes, A house must not have thick walls without openings. Neither must a discourse be all made up of solid slabs of doctrine without a window of comparison or a lattice of poetry. If so, our hearers will gradually forsake us and prefer to stay at home and read their favorite authors. Or watch your favorite television shows that they didn't have in those days. And, and, and uh, 
whose lively tropes and vivid images afford more pleasure to their minds. And so I think Spurgeon clearly recognized the importance of putting illustrations or stories to illuminate good doctrine. By the way, you go too far one way or the other with these uh, illustrations. You can go to the point where there's no illustrations, and you just have this sound, you know, didactic preaching, teaching, and no light coming in through story. That, that is very hard. And then you have the other extreme where you have storytellers, and there's no truth. You don't want to go that far. You've been in churches where the, you know, it's, it's one story after another story, then a joke after a joke. That, that, that's taking it. It's all light but no truth. So Luther gave this wise advice. He said, Cursed are all preachers that in the church's aim at high and hard things and neglecting the saving health of the poor, unlearned people seek their own honor and praise and therefore try to please one or two great persons. When I preach, I sink myself down deep into the congregation. Now that's Luther's way of simply saying this is, you know, you can step up and be high and lofty with your theology, no pictures, no illustrations, and maybe speak to two people that are really really motivated that way as far as they're thinking and leave most people behind. And he says, no, he says, when I preach, I want to sink deep down into the hearts of all the people. And part of doing that is bringing a sense of illustration or, or pictures to, in this, way, in this case, uh, slavery. For just as you once presented your members as slaves, here's the, here's the admonition, to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. He's going to tell us to do something here. We're going to have an imperative. Just as you were slaves, presented your members your, of your body, your digits, as instruments of impurity. And by the way, that's sewage, that's filth. It's a pretty, pretty graphic word in the original language. And outward lawlessness, that's how you, you were before. And by the way, your lawlessness as a non-Christian led to more lawlessness. And more lawlessness leads to more lawlessness, which ends up in a downward moral spiral in your life as far as sin goes, if it's left unchecked. I mean, David, who began with simply being idle one day, was, was gazing where he shouldn't have gazed. And then he committed adultery with someone he shouldn't have committed adultery with. That led to murder. And it just goes on and on. One sin doesn't stop with one sin. But one lawless act leads to another lawless act. And down we go in a downward spiral of sin. Every, ever try and eat one piece of pizza? I mean, for those of you who are pizza lovers, I mean, you know, with, with all the right cheese and all the right pepperoni and all the right seasoning and it's almost lunchtime and we're sitting here thinking, can you eat just one piece? Can you purpose? I'm only going to eat one a half a piece. I'm going to share that piece with my wife, the other half. Well, then soon that second piece is gone. Then the third piece is gone. And that's how sin is because he says that one act of lawlessness keeps leading to more and more unlawlessness in our Christian life. And so he concludes by saying, So now, present your members as slaves of righteousness. The change has taken place leading to sanctification. And by the way, this is progressively becoming more like Christ. 
So let me just close this morning with a question, just asking you where we opened up this morning, this question. So whose slave are you today? There's only two options. You understand you are a slave. Do you understand that everyone in this room is a slave, from the youngest up to the oldest? And Paul's telling us, God's telling us that either you're a slave to sin because you've never been born again, you've never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, or you are here as a Christian and you're a slave of righteousness. There's no in-between. There's no a third option. Those are the only two options. And so the Bible says, whose slave are you? If you're here without Christ, you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to your passions. You're a slave to your lust of your flesh. You're in that downward spiral. It just is going down and down and down that we just talked about. And every time you sin, you, you, you sin your, your flesh pats you on the back. Your master pats you on the back and says, well done. Way to go. Your slave, every time your flesh cries out and commands you to plunge deeper into a particular sin, and your response to him is, okay, how deep? How deep do you want me to dive? You're enslaved to sin. And here you are unable, you try, you know, you've, to free yourself from the bondage of, of sin, and you can't. I mean, how many people flood into AA trying to free themselves from the bondage of drunkenness? And they get a little bit of victory. Well, this is without Christ, non-Christians. And then what they, they, they exchange their slavery from one thing to the next. Now that you're not drinking, you, what do you have to do? You have to become a slavery to AA. And from now on, for the rest of your life, you have to go to the meetings, and now you're a new slave. But the only one who can break the bondage, break the bondage of sin, is God Himself. And He makes you a slave of righteousness by giving you a new heart. And so I closed with the, these words, am I a Christian? Are you a Christian? Have you been saved by grace alone? And if you're here today as a believer, you are a slave of righteousness. Paul is going to say, live like it. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Father, we close with a word of prayer, asking you, Lord, to bless your word. Lord, we do get lost in the words of Paul there in verse uh, 17, where he's just overwhelmed with thanksgiving as he is it more than likely considered what you did in his own heart, in his own life? Giving him a new heart and giving all of us new hearts. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit and a new passion to serve and love you and obey you. And then putting us into that mold of doctrine, of truth, the Word of God, to begin to shape us and mold us into the very image of Christ himself. We just cry out, Hallelujah, thank you. And for one or more here without Christ, would you be kind? Would you free them from the bondage? Would you take out the liberating key of truth, the power of the Holy Spirit, and lock the shackles that bind them to sin and free them? They might come flooding into the presence of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.